your Locked On Senators, your daily podcast on the Ottawa Senators, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm Jake Sanderson, and you're listening to Locked On Senators Podcast. I'm Tim Stützle, and you're listening to the Locked On Senators Podcast. Welcome inside episode 343 of the Locked On Senators podcast. I'm Ross Levitan in the heart of enemy territory, downtown Toronto, alongside Brandon Pillar up in Collingwood. Today's episode is brought to you by Rock Auto. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Visit rockauto.com and tell them Locked On sent you. Well, just days after his final rankings came out, Scott Wheeler from The Athletic, joins us on today's show for part one of a two-part interview. We get into the NHL-CHL agreement that needs renegotiation, and we discussed it on yesterday's show about Ridley Gregg and the benefits of him potentially playing a full year next in Belleville rather than going back to Brandon. Wheeler was on the other side of the argument, so great conversation there. And then, of course, we get into the draft. Tenth overall, your Senators have many options. Scott narrows it down to just three guys to keep your eye on. All that plus the fallout from Chris Phillips' resignation yesterday and Stanley Cup playoff talk. This is the Locked On Senators podcast, your team every day. Thursday, June 24th in Pilsy. Did Scott Wheeler convince you or dissuade you from any particular prospects from our conversation? Well, as always, Scott Wheeler, there's just so much knowledge, so much insight. I mean, this guy knows a hundred prospects inside and out. So definitely there was some new information brought to the table. And I think to answer your question, I think he furthered my hopes that a guy like Cole Sillinger could be available for the sense. Like he was talking about his shot, his work ethic, uh, all the things that he's had to do this season. I think Cole Sillinger would be a great option for the Sens at number 10, but you need to see who's available there. As he says, it, it's all depending on who's available and what the picks shake out before the sends at 10. I mean, I'm just so excited for this. And as we get further and further along, the anticipation grows. A month from now, it will be day two of the 2021 NHL draft. 29 days until round one. It's awesome that it's coming up so close. And that means mock drafts are well underway. Earlier this week, we did our own 1.0 edition. But yesterday, it was Corey Pronman who put out his mock draft. And for him, it's all about talking to guys around the league. So he gets a good sense of what teams are interested in. And at number 10, a goalie-friendly show has to appreciate this. Jesper Wallstadt to the Ottawa Senators. What would your initial reaction be if that's how it shakes out? Well, I think initially I would be a little bit disappointed just because we've talked so much about the available centermen slash wingers that the Ottawa Senators could select. There's so much talent up front that the Sens need help with that would really boost this roster and be kind of a pivotal piece in making this roster go from a team that has a bunch of stars to some depth as well. So uh, initially I think I would be disappointed they didn't go that route, but 
I think that would last a short amount of time, Ross, because we're a hashtag goalie friendly show. And the rumors that are going around about Jesper Wallstead, like like you said, Tony Ferrari, best friend of the show, said this guy could easily be the best player available in the entire draft. So when you're sitting at 10th overall and you have a chance to select possibly the best player in the entire draft, you have to do that. Even though I'm still convinced the Senators do have a number one goalie in their system right now. Somewhere. Somewhere. Like I would say there's three different options that could happen realistically, depending on how things shake out. But when you get a guy of that much talent and that has that much hype around him at 10th overall, that's pretty good. And I think that like me and you would have so much fun following around Jesper Wallstead now, right? Like Timmy is a blast. Jake Sanderson. We've had both those guys on the show, but to get a quality like franchise changing goalie in the mix, yeah. that would be so much fun to follow. Well, our friends down at Locked On Detroit Red Wings had Wallstead on their show a couple weeks ago, and he provided great insight. And you bet if he gets drafted by Ottawa, he's going to be on this show as soon as possible. He's a big, big goalie. Eh? Like, not as big in size as Sogard. Nobody is. But he's 6'3", bigger on skates, of course, but he covers so much net. He moves laterally so well. And, man, they could do way worse than taking Wallstead if if, if he's available, I still don't think he makes it past. I don't EY. think so either. But at the same time, remember on yesterday's show, I said, I've talked myself into the fact that there's no way the Red Wings pass on Mason McTavish. And well, what do you know? Corey Pronman has that being the case in his mock draft saying McTavish is the name I've heard most with Detroit early in mock season, but team sources have also said they think goalie Jesper Wallstadt or Kent Johnson could be the pick here too. So there is so many fascinating discussions. One storyline though, from Pronman's mock draft, I want to get into with you is that he alludes to it multiple times. There is an industry consensus top nine skaters. Do you agree with that sentiment? Yeah, I I would say like from looking at our rankings and looking at all the different scouts and reporters that we follow, it's, it seems like there is kind of a group of top nine guys that are constantly being mentioned, whether it's you're flipping a couple guys rankings or you have a couple different tiers, maybe one guy doesn't make it into that tier, but I think for sure we could see that the top nine guys that we're predicting are going to go there, are going to go there. The order that they're selected in, that's up for debate as well. We had four of the same nine picks that Corey Pronman made. We won't ruin exactly the order. Go check out the article with The Athletic. But I do want to mention who those nine players are, right? If there's a consensus top nine, here they are in no particular order. Owen Power, Luke Hughes, Simon Edmondson, and Brant Clark, the four defensemen. Kent Johnson, William Eklund, Mason McTavish, and Dylan Gunther, Matty Beneers, I think I didn't mention already. Yeah, as the ninth guy. So when you have that grouping, that leaves out Chaz Lucius. And it leaves out Cole Sillinger, let alone the Tendi Jesper Wallstad. And funny enough, not only does Pronman have Wallstad going 10 to Ottawa, he has Sebastian Costa, the other goalie in this draft, in the very next pick. That would be pretty cool to see goalies back-to-back that early in the first round. Hey, well, we just had Mad Sogard on the show and he said his agent had a feeling that would happen. One goalie got selected and 
choo-choo, the goalie train starts yeah. and teams don't want to miss out on that, right? You don't want to be on the on the back end of the goalie train. You want to be either the front card or the next one. So I think, yeah, if the Sens do decide to go with Wallstead, and it makes a lot of sense. The Chicago Blackhawks, that's a team that needs some goaltending for sure. And I think that uh, they would be happy to get a guy like Sebastian Cosa right after. So that would be really interesting to see two goalies go that high back to back. We can't move on from goaltending talk without mentioning how sick Mad Sogard setup looks. That came out yesterday on Instagram. We're working on getting the exclusive close-up of his mask, but the laurels along the bottom of the chin, that's a nice touch. Yeah, I like that a lot. And you know what I like too, Ross, is both of us, our kind of anticipation and idea was like, oh, I can't wait to see what his Belleville mask is going to look like. Uh, Mads has his uh, goals a little higher than that as he went right to the Ottawa Senator design mask. You got to love that confidence. Absolutely. He didn't put the entire 2D logo on the sides. He cut it off just after the head. So like the back half where it's that semicircle with the spikes coming out or a cape, whatever it is. It looks sick, but I still have no idea what it is uh, that's coming off the side of the logo. However, the laurels is what completes this look for me. So go check it out. We put it out at Send Central on Twitter. And if you missed our interview with Mad Sogar, two-parter, go check that out from last week all right speaking of interviews we've got a great one coming to you both today and tomorrow right here on losp it's scott wheeler the prospect analyst with the athletic he's been doing this year after year after year and he admits he wasn't so high on the sense 2020 draft and well we're gonna let him hear that after the draft we wanted to focus on just strict draft talk today and we do get into jesper wallstat with him but you gotta wait for tomorrow's half of the interview so before we get there, let's tell you about Bet Online. Our friends at Bet Online, it's the number one sports book for the Locked On Podcast Network, the only place we trust when it comes to our online wagering. Now, here's how you get a friggin' 50% welcome bonus. How good is that? 50% when you put in your first deposit. You just go to betonline.ag, whether it's on your mobile phone or your internet desktop. And when you make your free account, put in the promo code LOCKED ON at the deposit screen and 50% will just be automatically put into your account. Can you believe that? Put in $200, $100 right there. Bingo, bango, bongo. You put in $100. That's 50 free play dollars right there for you with the promo code locked on. What can you do with that free play money to turn it into cold, hard cash? You got to follow Pillsy's parlay of the day or fade it. I don't care because he goes through ebbs and flows, baby. Ebbs and flows. Hey, Pillsy, you were hot. Now you're cold. Where are we going to go tonight? Yeah, ebbs and flows is definitely accurate, Ross. Which, which is the negative of that? The flows or the ebbs? Somebody's going to have to text us. Uh, yeah. I have no idea. Yeah, you know I always screw up my classic uh, sayings and idioms and stuff like that. But whichever one is the downward one, that's what I'm on right now. I started hot on Monday, but it's been downward. So like Ross said, maybe you want to fade me. My gut is not treating me right these days. But I cannot stand to see the Montreal Canadiens beat the Vegas Golden Knights in six games. I think I still think Vegas is going to win this one. I doubled down, Ross, on my Vegas Stanley Cup bet for the future because this is good odds for them now. I think they're coming back. So with that, you got to start with game six. We're taking Vegas money line at minus 140. And 
I'm the goals. I'm not really sure about the over and under. So I'm just going to try to boost these odds and hope that goaltending is sharp. I mean, carry price in one end, you've got half the battle done there. So I'm taking the under the under set at five at plus one thirteen. So put together Vegas Golden Knights money line, the under of five, put 10 bucks in. You're going to win $26.51. That is Pillsy's playoff parlay of the day. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. Get into the action and don't forget the promo code locked on to receive a 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. It's Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. All right, Pillsy, before we throw it over to Scott, we want to give a little background context to how he does his rankings. A little bit different. And make sure you go read it for yourself. Lots of amazing insight, not only into how the players are ranked, but how he scouts as a whole. Yeah, and I think this is a great thing for Scott to do. Definitely, like Ross said, go to The Athletic, read his article describing the context and the way that he scouts and uh, does his rankings. Because I think a lot of people, they look at rankings and they have their own idea in their head of how guys should fit, but they don't take into, into context so many other things rather than just size, points, and position. Like, Scott does a really good job this is a long article, so definitely take some time to read it. But he lets the listeners and readers know that these are things that he looks at and he spends a lot of time scouting that maybe there's not quantitative data to show. Like some things he said, for example, like homesickness. I know that sounds really funny, but these are 16, 17, 18-year-old kids, some of them coming from Europe, going to North America or vice versa this year, which is usually not the case. And you're not used to new culture, new environment, new language, new food. That can have a big impact on you. Then you look at stuff like power play time. You see a guy that uh, you think should be on the top power play, but maybe he's on the second unit. Maybe he's fallen out of favor with his coaches. But also what's important is the league that you're playing in because not all leagues are the same, right? Like you can't be comparing apples to oranges, guys in junior versus guys playing in pro leagues over in Europe. Like there's so many different aspects that need to be taken into account when you're doing your rankings that graphs, charts, stats aren't going to show you. So I think it's really good that Scott does, he goes the extra mile. Like he's calling coaches. He's calling other scouts that are at the games because he's not able to do that. And he's figuring out really what's behind these players off the ice because that's very important for young. Like think about yourself at 17 years old, Ross. Like there's so much going on in your life that maybe you're not able to perform at school or at your job as well as you'd normally be able to because there's lots going on off the ice. So I think it's important and I implore everyone to go take a look at Scott Wheeler's article so that you you have a bit more of an understanding of why he's ranked certain players certain ways. Some of what you mentioned also implies to the CHL NHL agreement. We start our conversation off with that and then plenty of draft talk. So here's our friend of the show, prospect analyst with the athletic Scott Wheeler. All right. We now welcome a very, very special guest back to the locked on senators podcast He's a friend of the show. Third time with us. It's prospect analyst with The Athletic, Scott Wheeler. How are you doing today, man? Busy season for you. Yeah, busy season in its own weird way. I wasn't in the rink hardly at all this year. I made that one trip to Edmonton for the World Juniors, but this year I was basically not on the road. So I'm used to being uh, away from home and, and kind of on the road for, I don't know, two, two and a half weeks out of every four weeks in a month. 
So this season was slower that way, a lot more time with the family and with my wife, that kind of a thing, but busier in terms of the ridiculous number of hours that I spent sitting in front of my laptop watching tape, which can be uh, a little numbing after a while. So a, a change of pace, if you will. Yeah, and I'm sure you uh, you have a different change of pace now that you finally got your rankings out. I can only imagine for anyone who subscribes to The Athletic, you know the work that Scott puts into his rankings. And you got to feel pretty good that day. Like hitting that post button or that send button on those rankings has got to be a pretty good feeling, eh? It really is, honestly. Uh, and, and it sounds kind of corny to say that this one piece of the 100 pieces that I write every year in 365 days feels different than the others, but it really does. It's it's a labor of love. It takes a full year, year and a half to put together. It's hundreds and hundreds of hours of video and time spent on the phone talking to sources and all of that. So it, it's a monster. It's the biggest piece I release every year. And when it's finally sort of out there in the world, uh, it, it feels really good. I would say that this finishing this project, the, the, my final draft board, and then finishing the prospect pool rankings that I do in January and February every year, those are probably the two moments where it's like, holy shit, I'm done. I can, I can take a breather here. Uh, the, the prospect pool rankings in particular, I mean, that is morning to night every day for a month, right? So it's, that's its own beast. But th- th- this is a monster in, a, in another way as well. So yeah, it, it felt really good. I actually, as soon as I hit submit and alerted my editor that it was ready for him, I immediately went to the golf course and, and had a couple of beers. So well deserved. Uh, rewarded myself. Absolutely. And you, of course, you brought your built bars for the back half of that round of golf. I've got your <laughs> prospect pool rankings up here. You had Ottawa at number three, up from seven the previous year. And in those mm-hmm. rankings, Ridley Gregg was there. And before we get into all your draft talk for this year, we were having an argument And Troy Mann brought this up after signing his extension for two more years. And that's the impending renegotiation of the CHL-NHL agreement. Where do you stand on that with letting 19, 18-year-old guys under certain circumstances play in the American Hockey League? I think it's easy from the outside looking in to say, oh, this should be different, right? Like every NHL fan base, they they have that that knee jerk. I want my kids playing for my team. I want them in Belleville if they can't be in the NHL, that kind of a thing. And I understand the, the desire for that. I understand why NHL fans and their clubs would want that. Uh, it makes everything a little bit easier on their kids, gets them into their systems and the coaching and all of that a little bit earlier. You have more control over them. All of that makes sense to me. Uh, but I do also understand why it's constructed the way it is. And I think it's going to be very difficult in any kind of renegotiation for the NHL to come to terms with the CHL where it's changed on anything other than maybe one kid every X years, right? Like it's, th- those kids have such tremendous value, not just to the, the organizations that they play for, but really the leagues that they play in. And, and I, that cannot be overstated. These leagues have been through the toughest financial year that they're ever going to go through. Many of those teams are in extremely difficult situations financially heading into the fall. And those are the kids that sell tickets. I always tell the story whenever people bring up the CHL agreement and how bad it is, for example. I always talk about when I was in Ottawa covering junior hockey, covering the Ottawa 67s and covering the Gatineau Olympiques, right? And back in those days, there was Travis Konechny and there were some good players that came through Gatineau. Vitaly Abramov was one of them, obviously. But it was the players that came through on the away teams that created the sellouts. It was 
the Jonathan Gluines, it was the Nathan McKinnons, it was the Nick Ellers, it was for, in Gatno's case. And then for, for the 67s, it was Mitch Marner and Connor McDavid and Dylan Strome and those teams when they came through town that sold tickets. And they need those kids. And I, I, I think the number of those kids who can probably cut their teeth in the AHL in a normal year and be better served in the AHL than they are there is actually a lot smaller than people think. Everybody thinks that some disservice when these kids go back and they put up 1.5 or two points per game in the OHL. And I really don't think it is hurting them, them or their development in any serious way. And I think then everybody saw this year and said, oh my God, all these kids, they're capable of playing in the AHL. All these kids that were allowed to play there, they excelled. But the AHL was watered down this season, right? So you had... Every AHL team's best five players were sitting on taxi squads in the NHL. And those kids don't get those same opportunities. They don't get to produce the way that they did this year. When I'm talking about them, I mean like the Seth Jarvis's of the world, the Phil Tomasinos of the world. They just, they wouldn't have had the same years if this were a normal AHL year. And I really do understand where the CHL is coming from. And the NHL needs the CHL and they need it to be healthy. And if the CHL were to shrink in any dramatic way, it would have a very serious impact on the talent that's coming through to the NHL. It's the biggest feeder league that they have. So um, I really do think as as fun as it is to hope that there are all of these kids are going to be able to start playing in the AHL. I, I think it's a long shot. And I think for the betterment of the sport, it's, it's not the end of the world to have, a couple of kids on every team who are playing in the CHL instead of in the AHL. Yeah. And I, I think the the main example of this was in the Sens organization, Ridley Gregg, right? He starts the year in the AHL, does fairly well. And then the WHL gets back into action. So he has to head back and, and that's kind of that. And I think a lot of fans are saying, well, we think Ridley Gregg could stay in the NHL. Troy Mann maybe thinks the same, the coach of the Belleville Senators. Now, do you think mm-hmm. maybe there's a possibility that, they could come to some sort of agreement with a few exceptions to the rules where maybe like there's an agreement where you get to keep again, Ridley Gregg is an example, the Brandon Wheat Kings for three years, but then that fourth year he can have the option to go to the AHL. Now, do you think we could see some sort of hybrid like that where the CHL is still going to reap the benefits for most of the years with that star player, but eventually there's an opportunity for him to move on later? Yeah, I do think there is there is going to be some kind of tweak that way, whether it's every team gets every three years, you can take one kid and plop them on your yeah. AHL team for a season or something like you've just hinted at where the fourth year eligibility changes a little bit and that kind of a thing. Uh, I, I do think it's possible, but it's going to come with a compensation package going the other way. As it's currently constructed, every kid that is pulled out of the CHL before they're 20 and plays in the NHL, no matter how many games they play, there's compensation from that NHL team to that club team. I think the problem with that and the problem that will continue to emerge if there's similar compensation arranged for uh, CHL kids who play in the AHL is that it's the same teams that are getting rich. It's the rich getting richer right? It's, it's not the North Bay battalion that are getting 200 grand when some kid on the London Knights goes up and plays in the NHL when he's 19, right? So it's those teams. I mean, there are, there have been years where the London Knights have had five players and if it's a 200 grand each that they get, the, the, the London Knights have made a million bucks off of graduating players. Well, the North Bay or, or whoever else struggles, right? So I, I don't know how it's going to work because revenue sharing is never, I think, going to really exist in any real way in, in CHL. Like the, even the owners that are wealthy aren't wealthy enough to start forking out cash to the other teams. 
but maybe it goes into a CHL pot, right? Maybe every kid that graduates, it goes back into the CHL pot, and then that's distributed evenly between the teams. We'll see. Uh, I, I will be interested to see how that happens. But again, we can't just keep having the Kitchener Rangers and the London Knights and the Oshawa Generals and the Portland Winterhawks profiting off of these kids while some of these other teams really struggle and really support the league in other ways. So it's a complicated equation that they have to solve, but I do think there will be, there will be some kind of negotiation that happens on some kind of exclusion and that exclusion will come with money going the other direction from the NHL to, to either the leagues or to the teams themselves. Yeah, just from the fan point of view, you get so excited of these top prospects. And especially this year, we were able to get a glimpse of them in the team's colors. And you're like, oh, no, I, I want to see them develop and potentially m- make chemistry with a certain line mate. Although the Sens have kind of figured out a way around that. And that's just drafting overagers like their leading scorer this year in Belleville, Igor Sokolov. And Cole Reinhardt made mm-hmm. a bit of an impact as well. But those are gems later on in the draft. Well, in the Igor's case, end of the second round. But this draft, the top of it, is unpredictable, I think, is going to be a fair way to see it. Beyond, it looks like many people, yourself included, have Owen Power at number one. What's the one thing that separates him for you between one and two? Well, I hate to say that he's a safer pick because I actually tend to think that that word is used for all the wrong reasons and that teams back themselves into traps by taking quote-unquote safe players when there are better players available. Uh, But when I talk about Owen Power in terms of being safe, it's not about a reduction of his talent level and the fact that he's just going to be a guy and he's going to make it and some of those other kids may not. Uh, It's it's also about more than that. I, I just think with his size, the way that he skates, the way that he handles the puck, the way that he sort of processes the game in front of him, it's a rare combination. And, and we saw it in part at world championships where I thought as he played more Canada played better and they were brutal at the start of that tournament when he wasn't playing. And then when he was in their top four for the second half of the tournament, they turned it around and went on to win gold. And obviously that's not solely because of Owen power. And there were other players, Troy Stetcher, et cetera, Connor downtown, Connor Brown, et cetera. Um, but he was a big piece of that puzzle, and he didn't look out of place on a blue line full of NHLers. So um, I, I think that has teams feeling just a little bit more comfortable with him than they are with the other kids at the top of the draft. And then on top of that, I think he's talented enough to run a power play, and I think he's talented enough to make plays through scenes. And he certainly skates well enough at six foot six to to be a really interesting transition player that way as well. So. Um, there, there's just a ton to like about Owen. I, I think he's going to be a very, very good NHLer. You won't talk to a single coach or manager who has overseen him, whether it's in Chicago, whether it's in his minor hockey days, um, whether it's obviously at Michigan this year. Like They just love him. They think he's going to be a number one defenseman in the NHL. And uh, I'm not convinced that he's going to be a true number one, but I think he's going to be a first-pairing guy who can play 20, 25 minutes a night and do a lot for you. And those guys, when they're six foot six and they can skate are are pretty hard to find. And it's not just about the size. It's about a heck of a lot more than that. So uh, I'm I'm a big fan of Owen. And then the other reason, all of the kids at the top of this draft, except for maybe Matthew Beneers, all of the other kids at the top of this draft are weird in some kind of way. Like they've got some kind of quirk that scares you about them and that makes you wonder, is this kid going to cave out? And Owen just doesn't have that. I mean, in Kent Johnson, he's really skinny. Brant Clark, 
really unathletic. Luke Hughes, the injury and how quickly he's come along worries some people about, okay, was this year real? What does he look like at the next level? Is he more than his skating? Uh, Chaz Lucius, his skating. Simon Edmondson looks nothing like any player we've ever seen. Like There are things about him to love and things about him that are really scary for a top 10 pick. So all of those kids are just, they're just a little weird. There aren't really many surefire things in this draft. So I think that will ultimately result in, in Owen going number one and being the deserving sort of number one pick in a, in a little bit of a weird draft class. And he looks like a number one pick, eh? Six foot six, 215 pounds. And you have to go all the way back to 2001, the last time a defenseman wasn't taken in the top five. How many do you think will be taken in the top five this year? I think you could see three. I mean, there's obviously four big names. There's, there's Power, there's Clark, uh, there's Hughes, and there's Edmonton. I don't think all of those kids are going to go top five if only because there will be a couple of forwards that are going there. Matthew Beniers is going to go there for sure. William Eklund and Dylan Gunther could go there. So um, they're going to be in that cluster though. Like you're going to have four defensemen taken in the top 10. Um, I think that's a foregone conclusion or close to it. After that, obviously things sort of widen, but it's a very good, I mean, you, you look back at 2012, 2012 was a similar draft in terms of Neil Yakupov, Alex Galchenyuk, the forwards at the top were a little weird. Everybody, as much as we talk about Yakupov as, as a bust now, there were quirks about him that had people concerned at the time. And Galchenyuk skating was always a concern for people. So that draft, if you look back now, the best players are the Dumbas and the Morgan Rileys and the like seven defensemen that went inside the top 12 or 11 sorry, picks, right? Sorry, I got Cody Cece PTSD from that 2012 <laughs> draft still. Yeah, a lot of other defensemen turned out much better than Cody Cece did. But this is a draft that I think we'll look back uh, on similarly because there's not going to be a point per game forward. I think Kent Johnson and Dylan Gunther and William Eklund and those kinds of players have a chance to be kind of 65, 70 point guys, but you're not going to have a 90 point guy out of this 80, 90 point guy out of this draft. And as a result, you could look back and wonder, okay, is the, is the defenseman who's giving me 27 to 30 points a year and maybe isn't a true star, but is playing 22 minutes a night for me. Does he provide more value a lot like a Matt Dumba, et cetera, than, this sort of forward who is playing in my top six, but it never became the the top talent that I expected him he would be. Right, so um, that's the conversation I think we'll be having with some of these defensemen. And then the other part is that I think some of these defensemen also have a huge boom factor to them, which could make it really spicy. Like as much as I love Brant Clark, I'm, you won't find a bigger Brant Clark fan than me. And even Simon Edmondson, to a lesser degree, those kids. They, they could not even figure it out. Like there, there are some, some issues with their games and with their projection that are scary. So it, it, it's going to be a fascinating draft to look at 10 years from now. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of intrigue in the top five because, uh, as Ross said, we have about 10 different scouting entities that we use and their top five and top 10 are all very different. But unfortunately for the Sens this season, we don't have picks three and five to look at. Mm -hmm. We're down at 10, but that makes it really interesting too because there's, like I said, the top 10 lists are so different. So there's so many different interchangeable parts or things that can happen that can really just throw the whole draft on its head here. So with the 10th overall pick, who are, let's say, three different guys that you could see are kind of in the Sens range and would fit their their style of draft selection and their roster that you think would make sense for them to select? 
Well, I should start by saying that I really hope they pick a guy that I like, because if I have to go back and talk about how I thought there was a better pick available, which I did with virtually every pick they made in last year's draft, I'm going to hear it from Sens fans about we how I was too low on you, Tim Stutzler. We remember where you put Sanderson on your post-draft <laughs> rankings. Don't think we're going to let that slide. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I'm really hoping that I get to pump their tires and get back into the good graces of, of Sens fans here. <laughs> um, but no, in terms of the players who will be available, I, I would really like to see them pick a forward. Not, not just because of the way that the game is trending and the way that this draft has shaped up and the fact that three probably of those four defensemen, maybe all four of those defensemen could be gone. And then if you get into the habit of saying we need a defenseman once those four are gone I think it could be a reach at 10 but on top of that I just think the way that their their pool of prospects is constructed I mean we've talked about this before on the show but they have so many guys who look like they're going to be NHL players and good NHL players and well-rounded NHL players but there's still that sort of star quality that's missing in their pool right like the Shane, Shane Pinto's awesome and Josh Norris is awesome and I'm a huge I've been a massive fan of Drake Batherson for years right but those guys are, are secondary pieces. Um, and, and even as good as Tim looks like he might be, and even as good as Brady is, are, are Brady and Tim the one-two of a Stanley Cup contending team? Probably not, right? They still need another star there. They need someone who can really make plays. So I'd like to see them swing on that kind of a player. Don't go after the well-rounded two-way forward, right? Like try to take a cut on someone like a Chaz Lucius, who I think is the best goal scorer in the draft. Or if Kent Johnson is there, don't even think twice about taking Kent Johnson because I think there's a chance he's there and there's a chance he's one of those players who slips in this draft and becomes the kind of guy that you look back on five years from now and say, how on earth wasn't that guy a, five, a top five pick in that class, right? So I would take a, take a little bit of a risk, if you will, on someone like a Johnson who's got some flaws, very skinny kid, as I mentioned, or a Chaz who's got some flaws, still needs to work on his skating, as I mentioned. Uh, those are the kinds of players I would target, those two in particular. And then if neither of them are available, I really like Cole Sillinger for the Sens, nice. both in terms of the profile of player that they look for and in terms of kind of that range. Like he's... He might go a little bit lower than that. He might kind of go 12, 13, 14. But I, th- I think you'll be looking back at him a year later, a lot like we did with, I don't know, a Seth Jarvis from a year ago and say, okay, that kid, he, there's something special there. He's a tremendous athlete, like a ridiculous athlete. He's shredded. He's 3% body fat. He looks like a professional already. And then on top of that, he's one of the most skilled players, maybe has the best hands in the draft up there with Kent for sure. Uh, and then he can rip a puck and, and score. And, and the Sens need that. So th- those are probably the three guys. And in that order, it's probably Kent if he's available and then Chaz and then, and then Cole. And I think all three of those are good outcomes. So would you classify then Mason McTavish as a two-way center that you said you should stay away from? Or is he a guy you just well, expect to be off the board by then? I think he'll be gone just based off of how good he was in the second half in Switzerland after he got his feet wet and then how good he was at worlds and that sort of size, physicality, heaviness, shooting package. Some team's going to drool over him and and take him really high. All right, fine. 
So with those yeah. three three guys you mentioned, Lucius, Sillinger, and Kent Johnson, all of them are listed as centers, but as Sens fans know, just because <laughs> you're listed as a center, you might end up on the left wing your whole rookie season, which is okay. But if we're looking and trying to project to finally get that number one centerman that this, this Senators team needs, which of those three guys do you think projects to stay as a centerman rather <laughs> than shifting to the wing at the next level? Well, you may not like like this answer, but I think you could go for three there. Oh, um, no. No, Scott. Don't do this to us. Ken played center growing up, but he played wing this year at Michigan. And I think that I think they and a lot of scouts think that he's better suited there, in part because of how skinny and, and kind of scrawny he is. Chaz is a natural center, has only ever played center his whole life. But I've talked to people who know Chaz better than anyone, and they think that because of his skating, he may be better suited for the wing. And then... I don't know. Cole has played both, right? Cole played center in the USHL this year, a lot of it, but he played wing in his rookie season uh, with Medicine Hat. Part of that was because he was playing with two like 19, 20 year old veterans who were both also natural centers. So they had three centers on that line and they just decided that he was going to be the third guy to take faceoffs. But I think Cole could stay there. But again, because of his shot threat and the way that he plays off of the puck, he's a dynamic player with the puck. That's the bread and butter of his game is playing through contact. But because of his shot threat and how strong he is along the wall, um, I don't know. I, I think there's, there is a medium odds at least that Cole also ends up at the wing. So I wouldn't rule any of them out from becoming centers, but there are traits to each of their games that I think could, could have their NHL club say, okay, we like you better on the flank. One thing we know the Sens love is bloodlines, and Cole Sillinger's dad played for the Ottawa Senators. However, 12 <laughs> NHL teams can say that, as his yeah. dad is the most traveled suitcase in NHL history. But it is something to keep in mind because we've seen that year after year and draft after draft that that's who the Sens target. We know there's a couple other second level bloodline that uh, have players mm-hmm. in this draft. Brian Boucher's son is even in the draft. Is he. Uh, well, he's a forward, so he's obviously different than his dad. But what kind of player is he? Because I'm assuming the Sens are going to use a second or third rounder on him. <laughs> well, he's a power forward type that plays this sort of physical, tough along the wall, push and pop, shoots the puck hard kind of game. Um, he was injured this year and missed a good chunk of the season. And his draft stock may suffer, but he's also the kind of kid that teams fall in love with. And they see him as this kind of character, can play up and down your lineup, can play on your first line as the third best player or on the fourth line as your best player kind of thing. Like that's just the kind of player that he projects to be. So he's going to have some big fans. He, he, uh, he'll be a second round, maybe a third round pick. But I mean, you mentioned the bloodlines. Um, Josh Doan is an overager, the son of Shane. Oh, an uh, overager. Pierre Dorian just yeah. rubbed his hands together. <laughs> he's, he's going to get picked for sure. Uh, Marty St. Louis kid was another kid at the National Development uh, Program with Boucher. Red Savage, another excellent two-way center out of the National Development Program who obviously has NHL bloodlines. So it's a, it's a long, long, long list in this draft of guys like that. Stick taps to Scott for joining us. Stay tuned for part two tomorrow. Now let's drive on over to the final segment. Make sure our car is working well. And if it's not, we head over to rockauto.com. It's a family business. They've been serving auto parts to customers online and they've been doing it for 20 years. That is experience you can't teach. They have everything. Engine control modules, brake parts, tail lamps, motor oil, even new carpet. And whether it's for your classic or daily drive, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly 
to your door. That all sounds good, but it's not even the best part. Best part is the prices, of course. At rockauto.com, they're always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Don't do it. Go to rockauto.com right now, right now, and see all the parts available for your car or truck. All we ask is that you put locked on in their how did you hear about us box that way they know that we sent you amazing selection reliably low prices all the parts your car will ever need visit rockauto.com and tell them locked on sent you and make sure you're locked on senators wherever you download your podcast leading up to the nhl draft we'll have it for you monday through friday right here subscribe on apple google spotify or on the Odyssey app. All right, Pilsy, big announcement out of Seattle coming in just two hours. It seems like a head coach is going to be named. Now, Ron Francis is doing a fantastic job of keeping things under wraps, but we're seeing a name surface that is a bit of a surprise to me. Pierre Lebrun reporting that Dave Hackstall's name has come up. He's been an assistant with the Toronto Maple Leafs for the past couple of years. He had his stint in Philadelphia before that and even when he got that job it almost seemed like it was as a favor because he was the head coach of the North Dakota Fighting Sioux where Ron Hextall's son was playing at the time so it seemed like that was his into the NHL but he's been known as a very good coach but in more of a general term it's going to be awesome to have one step closer to finalizing what this Seattle Kraken is going to look like. Yeah, first, right off the bat, I don't know what the Seattle executives do, but they are so good at keeping secrets. Like the yeah, fact the jerseys? that yeah, the jerseys they were able to hold down for so long. And uh, there's an athletic article talking about the people that were used to film that promo. Like they were <laughs> under tight wraps that they could not talk. Are we going to have to pay the athletic for this seg- this show today? We have the Pronman mock draft, Wheeler interview, and now we've got another reference. Yeah, pretty much. If you if you haven't subscribed by now, I think it's pretty obvious that uh, it's worth the subscription. Shout out Ian Mendez. Yeah, big time. And so, yeah, with Seattle, I'm surprised that it seems like it's not going to be Rick Tockett Ross. I thought he was one of the top candidates, I think, when, when you're in Arizona, everything needs to be taken with a grain of salt. It's not like he had the best support or the grain best roster. Sand. Yeah, yes. a grain of sand. Yeah, a whole bunch of sand down there. But that's that's the thing. Like, I really think Rick Tockett is a great coach, and he has ties to Ron Francis as well. So it, it's going to be really interesting to see who they hire because it, it can be a big deal. Who you hire as your first head coach, like, that sets the standard. That sets the culture of this entire team. So big announcement coming out of Seattle and it's just one step closer to getting that team on the ice. Well, for people punching their steering wheel, cause they already know the answer to this. It seems like we do as well because Darren Dreger has now retweeted Pierre Lebrun saying all signs point to Dave Hackstall wow. being named the head coach of the Seattle Kraken. Make sure you go check out locked on Kraken coming on July 1st. I'm going to be locked on to that. It sounds like uh, an amazing opportunity for Erica Ayala. Who's going to be the host of that just being able to have a fresh slate. Now, good luck on the slow content days when you can't rely on this day in Kraken history or what are former Kraken players doing? Kraken abroad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What's Kraken has to be a segment. If it's not, then what are we even doing here? But yeah, go check out Locked on Kraken. There's already a social media account, but that show will be starting up 
July 1st. I'm sure we'll have Erica on the show once she gets a better idea of where she wants Seattle to go. And maybe we can dissect from an outsider's point of view, what is most attractive about the players that Ottawa could be losing. Well, ask her what she thinks about Chris Tierney. Yeah, exactly. Just steer her in that direction. But no, all that being said, the playoffs are still going on. So for all the focus about the teams that are done, we got to give some stick taps to the New York Islanders. We knew they were pesky. They got Pager as a set-the-tone type pesky player. But down 2 nothing in a must-win or your arena shutting down. Not even the season over. And they show a ton of resiliency coming back. And now it's a toss-up, game seven. And that's when you love having plus 220 odds on the Islanders. Because it's one game win all. And don't you get flashbacks from Pittsburgh-Ottawa in this series a little bit? An absolute shit-kicking in game five. I think Ottawa lost, what, 7-1 in that game? It, for the Islanders, it was 8 nothing, And then they come back and win a one-goal game, although Ottawa didn't need overtime thanks to Mike Hoffman. I'm liable to go, Michael, take your pick in game six. But it was an uh, unbelievable comeback for the Islanders. And you know what? I'm leaning them in game seven. I think Tampa, you know, they, they're coming off the cup. They've played a lot of hockey, well, except for Kucherov, who's just been sitting on LTIR. Hell, we don't even know if Kucherov's in the lineup, though. That was a pretty greasy cross-check there, No. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, if you're the Tampa Bay Lightning to have your playoff hero basically down and out for game seven in the Stanley or the semifinals here, that's real tough. But I I can't do it, Ross. I cannot jump on the Islanders bandwagon. We don't want you. Yeah, good, good. Um, I'm still sticking with Tampa. I just think there's there's too much there's too much talent there. And look, it was a bad turnover by Coleman that led to that overtime goal. Great shot. That Scott Mayfield shot was absolutely unreal, too. I think Vasilevsky was maybe a little bit low on that, lower than you'd like to be. But still, that's a tight corner to have to fit that puck in if you're Mayfield. So the Islanders, they deserve it. But I don't think they're going to get the lucky bounces, the the small windows of opportunity that they got in this game. And Tampa's going to shut the door in Game 7. We'll find that out tomorrow night. But before all that, it's... Game six, St. Jean-Baptiste Day in Quebec, and the Habs are hosting a game where they can head to the Stanley Cup final. It is going to be a complete riot. Well, hopefully not, but, I mean, Montreal we've seen in the past. If they can win this game, Quebec is going to be 100% back. There's going to be no more restrictions. Everything's back, full force. If the Habs make the Stanley Cup final, you know what? I'll tip my hat to a good story. It would be pretty incredible for sure. It would be. And I you can't deny that. But again, I'm sticking with my guns. I still think Vegas is going to come back and win this series, Ross. I just think similar to the Islanders, they've got the bounces to go their way. I'm not trying to discredit anything the Habs have done because Carey Price has been amazing and they've been able to take advantage. When they get dangerous scoring opportunities, the Habs are pouncing on them. Those three kids, Kock and Niemi, Cole Caulfield, and Nick Suzuki, they're lighting it up in the playoffs. It's, it's hilarious to look back, Ross, and remember that they were benched for a game in the playoffs. Like These are your best performers now. Why weren't they in the game to start off the playoffs? But that's, that's old news. I think the real question, Ross, is who is going to be in net for the Vegas Golden Knights tonight? Who is your pick? I would probably go Leonard. And I'm just doing that based off of his body of work and his last start. They went back to Flurry and it didn't really work. I mean, that was probably Flurry's worst game of the playoffs outside 
of uh, maybe one of the games against Minnesota. I feel like they got to him a little bit, but otherwise the only difference is, I mean, he's the veteran. He's, he's got you to the Stanley cup finals before he's, he's been obviously the best goalie in franchise history. I say tongue in cheek, but he's been unbelievable for them since they became a team. Like, don't you kind of win and lose with that guy? But I'm going to go back to what I said uh, a couple podcasts ago. The formula for success is ride Mark Andre's back to the conference semifinals, whatever you want to call them, then switch up to your other goalie. And that's how you win Stanley Cups. I mean, I don't want to, uh, nothing against Mark Andre Fleury, but that seems to be the way that's worked for teams in the past. And Robin Leonard, this guy's dialed in. I feel like, like he really is ready to go. He's been, he played really good in his last game. It, I'm with you. If they want a chance to extend this series and stay alive, I say they go to Robin Leonard and stick with him. I'm fired up to watch this game tonight. I really am. It's a, a last chance for Vegas' stars to figure it out because other than Petrangelo, their highest paid players have not been very good this series. Mark Stone, Max Pacioretty, just to name a few. But we might find out tonight half of what the Stanley Cup final matchup will bring. And you can be sure we'll break that all down on tomorrow's show. We got to end off today's show cleaning up the mess that was yesterday's lead conversation about Chris Phillips resigning from the Ottawa Senators Community Foundation. So bits and pieces were coming out. There was Ian Mendez who reported the initial fact that he has resigned and that he declined to comment. And then Brent Wallace quote tweeted that and he said that through his conversations, it sounds like the Sens Community Foundation was put on pause. How the hell do you put a charity on pause? Like, are all the kids magically okay? This is that that really did not sit well with me. Yeah, I don't understand putting putting it on pause, whatever, whatever that means. I'm not really sure, Ross. And then yeah, the the story continued and- even further. What happened to the Oregon project? What happened to the original Senators fan? This guy has torpedoed three charities in the last three years. It's absolutely disgraceful. Yeah. They're like in the name of charity, there's not much that you can like really do disgracefully, but somehow some way Eugene Melnick has found a way to do that. And yeah, we got even more information, Ross Elliot Freeman tweeting out that Ottawa let go of Brad Weir, hired in September 2020 as Senior Director of the Senators Community Foundation. and Wow, is... he, he lasted more than a year? <laughs> yeah, congrats. Give this guy a Medal of Honor. No kidding. And then he goes on to say, it is believed Phillips resigned due to that move. So I think if you're Chris Phillips, you're seeing the dominoes drop here and you're like, well, am I supposed to run this this foundation like I that's not what I was signed up for that's not what my intentions were I was meant to be more of a spokesperson and and help out as a you know former member of the Ottawa Senators and I think he could just see that things were not going the proper way this is not how you run a charity organization I mean we're not experts in that but I can tell you that pausing it and cutting senior executives is is not a positive thing that's for sure yeah, and uh, you know what? Good on Chris Phillips as well. I think the big rig doesn't need any more respect from the city of Ottawa, but I love that he would uh, you know, go to battle for his coworker because, yeah, Brad Weir was the senior director of the Senators Community Foundation, and then you got to think Chris Phillips. Yeah, he's the spokesman. He's the face of it, right? A, a face that the community knows and trusts and appreciates. So, You know, when you see the guy who's doing all the heavy lifting be let go unceremoniously, and by all accounts, Brad Weir is just the best guy. So 
to, to let good people leave the organization. All I'm going to say is Katie Strang uh, with The Athletic. She is an investigative reporter, and there will be an article later this summer about the dysfunction in the Sens organization. And for her, I'm sure she's had stories where it's hard to get information and she's trying to dig, dig, dig. There's no shortage of content. There's no shortage of people who have been through this organization in and out over the past five years. She is going to have her work cut out, cutting it down to a readably digestible amount of information. I would like the unedited version, please, though. I, I would read that. Uh, what was it? 112 pages, the rebuild plan. I would read double that on what has been going on over the past five years in that organization. I, yeah, I don't know. It's going to be really eye-opening to see that. And Ross, I bet Melnick probably already has a legal team ready for some lawsuits when that article comes out. Like, this is going to be a, a, a big one. Like, we hate having to talk about how dysfunctional this organization is from I the I want to talk down. about pucks in deep and Same. how pennies are making recovery saves and a little paddle action and... No, we, we don't get that. We get to talk about torpedoing charities. Amazing. Lovely. Great. Wonderful. Yeah. I don't, there's not much more to say than that. Like this is just, this is not what we signed up for Ross. We did not <laughs> sign up to be a daily Ottawa centers podcast to apologize for how terrible our team's organization for charity is going. Like it can be it's yeah. terrible. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Now, I, what I will say is often, especially I feel like more so last year, the year before, we were always kind of portrayed as being overly positive on uh, social media when it comes to the Senators. I think more so for the on ice and, you know, understanding that a rebuild is scorched earth at times. But now, like, I'm already questioning what's going to be the next step about keeping these kids when it's time. Like, I just have absolutely no faith. So I'm not going to carry water for the organization just because we talk about them every day. I think that the best way to cover an organization, and Brent Wallace um, and, and Ian Mendez exemplify this, I think, better than anyone. Obviously, still crickets from a certain member of the media. But with those two guys, it's the integrity that you get because – you're working for the fans. You don't work for the team. So as much as you're covering them, you're not, they're not signing your paychecks. The people who subscribe to the newspaper or the media outlet you work for, that's who you deserve. That's who you work for in all kind of to make a big picture shrunk down pretty simply. Yeah. And Ian, Ian, he portrays that perfectly, right? Like he told us when I'm writing my articles, I'm writing strictly, what do the fans want to know and want to hear about and, and need to know to move forward. And I think Ross, I think the, the biggest irony of all of this is who has done the best job of charity in the Ottawa uh, senators community recently the fans like let's talk about like graham nichols he he did the um liver yeah. donation uh charity that raised so much money so quickly then the brian fraser with um with the blood canada's bloodline canada bloodline the fans organized that and uh, there's another well this isn't a charity but the fans organizing to raise enough money to get the billboards for melnick out like the fans do a better job of rallying together and organizing money for for charity than the actual team does itself let that if, sink in well if only ego didn't get in the way and they could use their passionate 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 fan base as an advantage to all this and 
you know, there's, I think, a lineup that you could wrap around the CTC 10 times of people that would be willing to help because they want to see their local team that they've lived and died with and been to the Stanley Cup finals and been in last place and everywhere in between. They want to see them succeed again because the vibe in the city is just different when the Sens are doing well. So, hey, we're cheering for the on-ice product. There's no two ways about that, but we're going to do it as fairly as possible in the grander scheme of things. Like, yeah, you can say that we're fans at the end of the day. There's no question about that. And I think that's what makes our show good is that we're not hiding and trying to be unbiased reporters for the team, but we're also not carrying water for them as well. We are passionate fans and we grew up cheering for the Ottawa Senators. So of course we want them to succeed. But when you see the off ice stuff going on the way it is, it's just, you know, you just have to shake your head at it. And you always say like, all right, what's behind the next door? Because it just seemingly is a a haunted house that we can't get out of. But Pilsy, there's never a dull day in Sensland, that's for sure. And I have a feeling that there's going to be a new story tomorrow. And, you know, we'll be all over it. We also have part two of our interview with Scott Wheeler coming up. We get into Jesper Wallstad and a whole lot more. Who is his bang on the table pick for the second round? If he was on the Sens draft table, like who is he going to battle for and saying, you need this guy in the organization. So stay tuned for all that tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy your day for Brandon Pillar. I'm Ross Levitan. This has been the locked on senators podcast, your team every day.